This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for your word that is everlasting truth, your word that is infallible, your word that is inerrant, your word that is the means by which you teach us, instruct us, guide, and direct us. It is how you uh, mature us in our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. Father, we thank you for this nation in which we live, for the freedom we have. We pray that you would continue to watch over, guide, and direct our president. We pray for our military overseas, those serving in the military, many from this congregation. We pray that you would uh, watch over them, those that are uh, serving or working in the uh, in Iraq, Kuwait, and other areas. We pray that you would protect them and bring them home safely to their families. Father, we continue to pray for us that we might be mindful of the great privilege that we have as members of your royal family, that we might not take lightly that which we have, and that we might uh, continue to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray that you would guide and direct us as we study your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this morning we continue on our study about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have done so far as to follow a fairly methodical, systematic approach to understanding the person of Christ. I began in the Old Testament. We looked at Old Testament passages that prophesied that the Messiah would be a true human being, undiminished deity. Then we looked at passages that emphasized the deity of the Messiah, that he would be also be God. Passages such as uh, Isaiah 7:14 that he would be called Emmanuel or God with us. Isaiah 9:6 that he would be called Mighty God. Then, having concluded our study of Old Testament uh, promises, prophecies, types, and titles of the Lord Jesus Christ, we began to focus on what happens in the New Testament. Last week, we looked at Galatians. 4.4, which said that it was in the fullness of time that the Savior was born. That he, This phrase, the fullness of time, indicates that this just didn't happen by chance, that there was a plan, there was a purpose to the birth of Christ at that time. It gives us a hint of a biblical philosophy of history and that God was working in and through history to prepare the human race for the coming of the Messiah. Now, this morning we began to look at how, at just how the incarnation took place. How did we end up with a Savior who could be both fully God and fully man, undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever? 
That takes place through the virgin birth. Therefore, the virgin birth is not merely some secondary doctrine that is somehow just tacked on to Christianity, that somehow uh, someone came along and said, oh, let's uh, take this idea from uh, mythology and try to give a little more credibility to Jesus and claim that there's a virgin birth. We have seen that there are indications and prophecies of a virgin birth going back to uh, Genesis 3.15, the phrase seed of the woman doesn't explicitly teach the virgin birth, but it's certainly an unusual phrase that implied that. Then when we came to Isaiah 7.14, we looked at that in detail and saw that in the Hebrew it says that the virgin uh, will conceive, and that that indicates not just any individual, but a specific reference to the virgin, and that that was understood in Judaism to refer to the, the woman who would give birth to the Messiah, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. So I would say from all of these studies and from what we'll see in the Scripture that there's ultimately two doctrines related to the person and the work of Jesus Christ that you must have, you can't have, that if we don't have those two doctrines, we do not have a salvation. We do not have a Savior. And one is the virgin birth, the other is the resurrection. And, of course, both of these doctrines entered into the crosshairs of 19th century liberal theology and became uh, uh, the focus of their many, many assaults through the end of the 19th century and down through the 20th century. In fact, if you were raised in uh, many of the mainline liberal denominations in this country, then you were probably never taught anything about the virgin birth. In fact, in some of those mainline denominations, they deny the literal virgin birth of Christ as they deny the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So this morning I want to begin to explore what the New Testament teaches about the virgin birth, and our starting point will be the genealogy of Jesus. So let's turn to the Matthew genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, verse 1. Now there is a problem called the genealogical problem in comparing the genealogies of Matthew with the genealogy of Jesus given in Luke 3. And we will have to take the time to look at the details of these uh, differences in order to understand what is going on in these genealogies and why they are important. Now, for many people, the genealogies are rather boring. They're just simply a list of names. And I remember when I was in about the fifth grade, I guess you're about 10 or 11 years old in the fifth grade, and uh, back in those days, the Gideons could still give little New Testaments out in public school classrooms. And so they came to class and talked about the importance of the Bible and gave each of us a little pocket New Testament, which I still have somewhere. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm going to start reading my New Testament. I'll read through through the uh, Bible. And I started off in Matthew 1.1, and I got down about ten verses and decided that, well, this really wasn't very interesting at all, and that was about the extent of my devotion to reading the New Testament at that time. Now, the reason the New Testament begins with Matthew, and the reason Matthew begins with the genealogy is because it plants the birth of the Savior clearly within the context of Old Testament prophecies and promises. And we live in a culture when genealogy really isn't that important or that significant to most people, but that is not true about the Jewish culture. Matthew was a Jew. Matthew was uh, reared in that Jewish culture, and he is writing his gospel to Jews. The purpose of the gospel of Matthew is specifically to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. There are more 
Old Testament passages quoted in Matthew than any of the other gospel accounts. And the reason is that Matthew is demonstrating to a Jewish readership that Jesus of Nazareth fits the bill. He fulfills all of the requirements given in the Old Testament for the Messiah that he is indeed the promised king. And so he begins with the genealogy of the king, which shows that he is indeed related not only to David, the son of as the greater son of David, the promised the Messiah would be in the uh would be an heir to the throne of David, but that he also goes back to uh, Abraham, the founder of the Jewish race. So this is the thrust of Matthew's genealogy. Now, there's a couple of other things that we need to note about the genealogy, some of these things we have noted in our study of the genealogies in Genesis. One is that genealogies, there's different kinds of genealogies. Uh, we have what is called linear genealogies, which go through from one generation to the next, you also have segmented uh, genealogies, and this is when a genealogy gives a, a father and then several of the sons of that one father. And then you have open genealogies where there may be gaps between the uh, what is called the father and the son. Actually, what the text is simply doing is demonstrating a line of inheritance and the legal line of inheritance in those passages, it is not claiming that X is the literal father of Y, but that there is a an inheritance line, a legal inheritance connection between one generation and maybe two or three generations later. Then we have closed genealogies. And a closed genealogy is a genealogy that is also concerned with chronology. And in a closed genealogy, you have uh, <clears throat> a formulaic statement such as uh, person A uh, lived X number of years and gave birth to B and then lived Y number of years and died. And then B lived uh, X number of years and gave birth to C and then lived Y number of years and died. And then C uh, lived uh, X number of years and then gave birth to D and then lived Y number of years and died. And the reason that's called the closed genealogies is because the numbers make it impossible for you to insert other generations in there. It shows direct lineage of father to son. And in a closed genealogy, there are no gaps. But in an open genealogy, there will be gaps. And Matthew's genealogy is, a, is an open genealogy. It is called an open genealogy because there are no numbers. And so the function of an open genealogy is simply to demonstrate the line of inheritance. And so that is one of the purposes for Matthew's genealogy is to demonstrate the line of inheritance from David to Jesus Christ, that there is a legal line of descent. And that also, of course, goes back to Abraham, and this is going to demonstrate that Jesus is not only the son of David, but also the son of Abraham, so that he is a true Jew, which was a part of the Old Testament promise. Remember, there was a narrowing of those Old Testament promises and prophecies. First of all, it's the seed of the woman. Then it was further clarified that the seed would come through Abraham. And then it was further clarified in Genesis 49, 7, that it would come through Judah. And then it was further clarified in 2 Samuel 7 that that would be as a descendant of David. And as we will see, there was one branch of David's descendants that would be excluded from the Messianic line. And this is part of the problem in understanding the differences between the Matthew genealogy and the uh, Luke genealogy. Now, if you were students in a theological classroom, I would do have you do an assignment 
on this like I did when I was uh, over in Kiev recently. And the first day, I knew I wouldn't get there for three or four days. They would give them some time. I told them to go home and take a sheet of paper and to list on that sheet of paper all of the names from one generation to the next in Luke chapter 3. Start there. Because Luke's genealogy is the longer genealogy. Now, Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and works its way backward uh, to David. So you have to uh, remember that you're going in reverse order in, in Luke. Matthew's genealogy, on the other hand, starts with Abraham and goes down to Jesus. So one goes in one direction, the other goes in the other direction. And maybe this is something you can do at home with your with your kids to give them a little exercise in this. And just write down from Jesus back to David all of the names listed in Luke's genealogy. And then come along and look at Matthew's genealogy starting in verse 6 with David. And just list the those in the genealogy from David down to Jesus. And you'll notice that there are some similarities as well as some important differences. Now, the reason I just would have you look at that list from David to Jesus is because the names are identical between Abraham and David. So there's no distinction between the two genealogies when you compare Matthew and Luke with with those listed from Abraham down to uh, David. The differences come after that. And one of the things that you should notice is that they differ as to the identification of Joseph's father. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Or actually, just to pick it up a little bit, let's look at verse 15. Towards the middle of verse 15, we see that Eliezer begot Mathan. So let me put this up on the overhead. Eliezer begot Mathan. And then Mathan begot Jacob. And then uh, Jacob begot Joseph. And notice the text says that it, it doesn't say Joseph begot Jesus. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So Matthew makes a clear statement there that avoids making Jesus the physical son of Joseph. Now, hold your place there in Matthew 1 and turn with me to Luke 3. Matthew 1, let's skip over to Luke 3, and I'm going to draw the other parallel up there. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. We'll start there. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. So we'll put Joseph here. Joseph, and then we read the son of Heli. The son of Heli, the son of Mathat. The son of Mathat, the son of Levi. Okay, now that's about as far as we need to go. You ought to be able to see from what's on the overhead, that there's a bit of a difference here. According to Matthew's genealogy, Joseph's father's name is Jacob. Luke says it's Heli. That another, and many people think, well, they must have been brothers. And perhaps uh, uh, one of them died before they gave birth to a child. And so we have an example of levered marriage here, and Heli would have been the actual father of Joseph, but he uh, marries uh, Jacob's widow, and so Joseph then is a legal descendant of Jacob due to lev- the principle of levered marriage. And according to this view, Mathan and Mathat are seen as the same person. That's one attempt to try to understand the differences in the two genealogies. But there are 
better ways to describe that, and I'll come back to that uh, chart in just a minute. As we look at these genealogies, you see that there are some differences and what appear to be some contradictions between the two genealogies. And the first contrast that we note is that they differ as to identification of Joseph's, Joseph's father. Matthew, secondly, we can say that Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy and connects it to the Old Testament and specifically to God's plan for Israel and God's promise to Abraham. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, begins his gospel with the birth of Jesus, with the uh, actually the promise of John the Baptist, the birth of John the Baptist, then the birth of Jesus, then his baptism and the temptation in the wilderness, um, uh, excuse me, the, the genealogy comes between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation. And he is putting his genealogy in, into his gospel for a different purpose. He inserts it at that stage between the baptism and the temptation because in the baptism it is when God the Father announces from heaven that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so it is at that point, with reference to that announcement, that Luke is adding his genealogy in order to demonstrate who who Jesus is. Notice he takes him back all the way. If you look at the end of the genealogy, in verse 38, he is the son of Adam, the son of God. And what did the Father just announced, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So Luke's genealogy is included for a different purpose than Matthew's genealogy. Furthermore, a third contrast between the two is that Matthew groups his names symmetrically in groups of 14. There are three groups of 14 names each, whereas Luke simply uh, lists everyone all the way back to uh, all the way back to Jesus. Another contrast is that Matthew includes the names of several women, which Luke does not. Although he seems to have more about women in his gospel than any of the other gospels. Now that's interesting to note because here's a man who's a physician. And he has a tremendous amount about Mary, and yet he doesn't mention Mary's name in the genealogy. And I will point out why when we look at that, at the solution to this problem in just a minute. He is, he, that signifies something. Matthew includes the names of several women, but then he excludes Mary. That also says something. It shows that, uh, that he is tracing a line of inheritance, not uh, the line of physical descent. Matthew mentions four women in the genealogy of Jesus. They are Tamar, the, the um, wife of, of Judah, who, remember, was involved in an episode of prostitution where she had incest with her father-in-law. It also mentions Rahab, who was a prostitute. How would you like to be known throughout history with the appellation uh, harlot after your name? Throughout all of history, she's known as Rahab the harlot. And for those of you who may have forgotten, as I did when we did our study of Ruth a few years ago, Rahab is the mother of Boaz, Boaz who married uh, married Ruth. So there's the inclusion of Tamar, who is... Uh, has this episode of sexual uh, infidelity and incest, Rahab, who is a prostitute, Ruth, who's a Gentile. Rahab, of course, was also a Gentile. Ruth is a Gentile, and then Bathsheba, who is involved in the adulterous affair with David. So this indicates that there is not a line of purity, but that in God's grace there's an inclusion of Gentiles and uh, those who are uh, clearly immoral within the line of Jesus. Now that says something because 
if you were to look at most world religions or, or something that was just developed mythologically, there would be an attempt to cover up something like that. Oh, you're not going to put somebody of, who has a bad reputation in the line of, of the Savior, and this shows that God overcomes the problem of, of sin. Now, in contrast to Matthew, <coughs> Luke will trace Jesus' lineage back to Adam. Matthew only goes back to Abraham. Thus, Luke is emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, that he is related in his humanity to all mankind and thus can die as a substitute for the entire human race, whereas Matthew just traces Jesus back to Abraham because he is emphasizing that he is Jewish and and also the uh, relationship to David, that he has a claim to the Davidic throne. So, sixth point of, of contrast, Matthew begins with Abraham, moves forward to Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus and moves backward to Adam. So there is a different flow in each genealogy, and that's important to understand why there are no gaps. Seventh point, Matthew is emphasizing Jesus' Jewishness as a son of Abraham, whereas Luke emphasizes his relationship to all humanity. Eighth point, in the section of the genealogy between uh, Abraham and Jesus, see Matthew only goes from Abraham to Jesus, Matthew has 41 names, whereas Luke has 57 names. So obviously Matthew is leaving out a few names. But in the section between, and in the section, point number nine, in the section between David and Jesus, only two names are common in the list. And those are the names Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. So the question has to be answered, are they the same people or are those just common names of different people? And you have a problem if they're the same people. They are not the same people. They just, it just so happens that in both genealogies, um, before we get there, I'll just give you a clue. Uh, Matthew's genealogy is the genealogy down through Joseph, and it is for a purpose of demonstrating that there had to be a virgin birth. Jesus, the Messiah, could not have come from Joseph because he would not have been qualified to go to the throne because of the Kaniah curse, which we'll get into in a minute, whereas Luke's genealogy traces his uh, descent through, uh, through Mary. Now, if Shealtiel and Zerubbabel are the same in both genealogies, then you have problems because of the uh, because of the Kaniah curse. Because Shealtiel and Zerubbabel come after uh, Jeconiah, and if uh, if they are the same person, then there is a another problem. But since the people who uh, lead to them and come from them are different, they must be different individuals. It's just a coincidence of name. Furthermore, we find under, I guess this is my tenth observation, there are 60 names in Luke's genealogy that are not in Matthew, so it is a much more detailed list. Eleventh uh, Matthew's list goes through Solomon. Luke's list goes through Nathan, two different sons of David, and that indicates a, the different lineage and the way that uh, their inheritance is passed. One goes through Nathan. One goes through uh, Solomon. There's one other thing I want to touch on before we get any further, and that is the question of gaps in the genealogies. Now, we're going to have to deal with this in detail when we get into Genesis, so that will be just good review when we get there in Genesis 11. But let's go to uh, Luke. Turn back over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and let's look down at verse, verses 35 or 36 to 37. 36 to 37. Luke 3, 36 says, 
that begins with the son of Canaan. Each of these is tracing through the genealogies, and this is in the period between Abraham and uh, Noah. In verse 36, you have the mention of Canaan between Shelah and Arphaxad. So let's, uh, I'm going to put this up on the screen. You're liable to get lost otherwise. This is from Genesis uh, 11. So in verse 35, we have Eber, who is the son of Shelah. Then we have Canaan inserted, and then he is the son of Arphaxad. Now, the reason this is important is because Canaan here, this Canaan, is not, me- is, uh, not mentioned in the Genesis 11 account. So hold your place here, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, starting in verse 10, we have this is the genealogy, or this is the descendants of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. Now, what does that tell you? What did you just see in that, in that verse? Numbers. What kind of genealogy is this? It's a closed genealogy because it has numbers. Uh, Shem was 100 years old, begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years, begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah. See, notice, Arphaxad goes to Shelah. That's the Greek form of Salah that you have in Genesis 11. No mention of Canaan. Now, the reason this is important is because this is the only alleged gap in a closed genealogy. And because there's this one alleged gap in this one geneal- closed genealogy, people come along and they say, see, there are gaps in the genealogies, and, and this affects all their dating systems and cast aspersions on the literal uh, numbers in, in uh, Genesis and being able to date the earth with the young earth genealogy and everything else. Folks, there's one potential gap in one genealogy, uh, their lifespan was three or four hundred years at this time. They were giving birth by the time they were a hundred years, years of age. At the most, what this tells us is that you've got a hundred year problem or two hundred year problem. Let's say there's three or four gaps, but you can't get thousands of years out of that. But what I'm going to show you is that this is, uh, should not have been inserted in the text anyway. Remember, as I have taught you many times in the past, the Greek text, the original Greek text didn't have punctuation, neither did it have spaces between words. And so if you were reading in the Greek text, and you were reading along, and there weren't verses either, and you were reading along at the end of, of, of a line, let's say, turn, look down at verse 37. The last word and verse 37 would look like what I've written on the overhead, to Kainan. Now, if you were writing, you just had all these Greek letters going across the page, and this happened quite frequently with scribes, as you are looking from one scroll and then copying to another, then what happens is that your eye goes to the wrong line. And what happened, apparently, in the copying of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament, uh, actually what was happening in the copying of, of the Luke passage, is that at some point somebody double copied to Kainan. And so we had an insertion of the phrase, of Canaan, twice in the Luke genealogy when it should only be there once, that is, at the end of verse 37. Now, how do we know that? 
How do we know that? Well, if you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made in the second, approximately 2nd second century B.C., you will find that in many copies of the Septuagint, there is the insertion of Canaan, Canaan in the Genesis 3 account. In Genesis 3, what I read to you, I mean Genesis 10, what I read to you earlier, uh, from Genesis 11, what I read was based on the translation of the Masoretic text, which is the standard accepted text of Jews and Christians for the Old Testament. That is the standard Hebrew text. The, it dates back to approximately 900 A.D. This is why the Dead Sea Scroll discovery was so important, was because it gave us copies of the Hebrew Old Testament dating back to approximately uh, 2nd century B.C. to the 1st century A.D., and we discovered that there were very few changes, if any, between the Old Testament. So here's a thousand-year period where there's no corruption of the text. However, at approximately the same time, 2nd century B.C., Jews who were scattered in the uh, Greek-speaking empire had lost the ability to read and understand Hebrew, so they commissioned in Alexandria, actually Ptolemy, uh, the emperor, uh, the, the ruler there in Egypt, commissioned the Septuagint. It's called the Septuagint from the uh, Septa meaning 70 because the legend is that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Pentateuch, that the Septuagint was translated. Now, the Greek, the Hebrew has no, let's put it, kainat, has no kainon in the in the Masoretic text. But in the Septuagint text, there is the insertion of kainon. Now, which is right? Well, when you do a little further study, what you, do, what you discover is that the Septuagint manuscripts that have the insertion of kainon are very late. In other words, they are post-2nd century A.D. copies. Earlier copies, those copies of the Septuagint that we have that come from the time of Christ or before, do not have Kainan in the Septuagint. A couple of lines of evidence for that. In Josephus, when Josephus, who would be, from, who would be getting his information from the Septuagint, when Josephus gives the the genealogy of Genesis 11, he does not list Kainan. He, he goes straight from Shem to Arphaxad. The same is true of Julius Africanus, who puts together a, an entire uh, world history in the 2nd century A.D., and in his chronology, which would be based on the co- copies of the Septuagint available to him, he has no mention of Kainan. So it's not until after the second century AD that apparently based on a corruption in the, in the transmission of the, of the Greek of the New Testament, Kainan then comes into later Septuagint translations. Okay? So you've got a, you've got some real problems. Number one, if you, if you're a seminary student and you're looking at a Hebrew uh, Bible, and you look at Genesis 11, you'll discover that, that that gives the history of all the manuscripts and what has what, and you'll discover that Kainan isn't listed in most of the Hebrew manuscripts and only in the later Septuagint manuscripts. When you come to the uh, New Testament, you discover that there's not really much of a textual problem here because it happened. So, the corruption happened so early in the history of the transmission of the text. The point that I'm making here is that there is, is excellent reasons to recognize that the, the insertion of Kainan here in verse 36 is a result of a scribal error where they duplicated and his eye went down and he inserts it from verse 37, but that Kainan 
It was not in the original of either Genesis 10 or in Luke 3. And if Kainon is not there, there is no gap anywhere in any closed genealogy, which just makes sense. So that takes care of that particular uh, particular problem. Now let's go back to our main problem in the genealogy, and that is how do we understand the difference between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy? There are basically three approaches to solving this problem, and I'm not going to bore you with all of the details, but the first two, which are often suggested, both believe that Luke and Matthew are tracing uh genealogy to Joseph, that both of these go down to Joseph, and it's a, uh, a literal line. Uh, Matthew is dealing with the legal descent, and Luke is dealing with the physical descent. That's one view. The other view reverses that, says Matthew's dealing with the physical descent, Luke's dealing with the legal descent. Both of these views are based on assuming that going back to our earlier Going back to our earlier chart, both of these assume that Mathan in Matthew and Mathat in Luke are the same person. But if they are not the same person, then you have completely different lineages. And just because there's similarity of name doesn't mean there's identity in name. And since the surrounding names are different, this should be rejected. Furthermore, many scholars recognize that this is this is uh, a very difficult solu- solution to the problem. It's based on pure conjecture of a levert marriage. It's a very complicated way of explaining it, and it's also based on a very odd understanding of the term begot used in um, in Matthew. The best solution was one that was first suggested by uh, Aeneas of Viterbo in about 1490 A.D., and that was the recognition that the Matthew genealogy reflects Joseph's physical descent, and Luke's genealogy gives us Mary's descent. Uh, Joseph gives us, I mean, Matthew gives us Joseph's physical descent, and Luke gives us Mary's physical descent. Matthew traces uh, the genealogy uh, from David through Solomon to Joseph. But this is designed to di- show that Joseph is disqualified from being Jesus' father. Matthew includes a genealogy to prove the necessity of the virgin birth. Let's uh, look back at Matthew for just a second. Look at the structure of Matthew. Matthew gives the genealogy in the first 17 verses, and then he get, tells us the arrival of the Messiah in verses 18 through 25. He tells the story about uh, Mary and Joseph being betrothed in verse 18, and that uh, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then verses 19 through 23 talk about Joseph realizing this and trying to figure out how he's going to deal with this problem of his wife who is now pregnant even though uh, they aren't married yet. And in verse 23, we have a reference, a citation of the prophecy from Isaiah 7:14 behold the virgin shall be called with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God with us Matthew quotes Isaiah 7:14 to demonstrate the necessity of Jesus being born of a virgin that had to happen because Joseph could not be involved due to something called the Coniah curse now, Coniah is a shortened form for Jeconiah. Jeconiah was an evil king of the southern kingdom of Judah in the Old Testament. And because of his disobedience to God, because of the corruption and perversion of his reign, God announced a curse on his descendants in Jeremiah 22.30. Jeremiah 22.30 reads, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, 
For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. This announcement meant that no one who was a physical descendant of Jeconiah, a physical descendant of Jeconiah, could rule on the throne of David. So as we see in Matthew chapter 1 verse 12, Jeconiah is a, is in the uh, line of descent from Solomon to uh, Joseph. Actually began in verse 11. Josiah, who was a good king, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. Those are not the same Sheltiel and Zerubbabel as in Luke. If they are, then that would mean that Mary also came through Jeconiah. And you've got to, you can't have that happen because of the Kaniah curse. So these are two different individuals. And so the Matthew genealogy is designed to show that Joseph could not be involved in the birth of Jesus. He could not be involved in the conception of Jesus because if Joseph were the physical father of Jesus, then Jesus would not be qualified to be a, a to sit on the throne of David, and he would not be qualified to be the Messiah. So that is why there is a distinction between the two. Now we come over to Luke, and we'll see how Luke uh, handles the situation there. Once again, you have to have some familiarity with the Greek uh, New Testament, with the Greek as opposed to the English. If we look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23, we read, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, and that's put in parentheses in the English, it's not in parentheses in the Greek, and it should not be in parentheses. It is not, uh, the parentheses makes it look as if it's not in the original. It is in the original. And Luke says, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, one of the things that happens from this point on in the genealogy, with every single name of the 61 names in Luke, there is an article, a genitive, prefixed to every single name. There is one name in this genealogy that doesn't have an article. And that's Joseph. That sets Joseph apart in this genealogy from everyone else in the genealogy. And just for a little extra documentation on this particular point, I am going to quote from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Now, we've had Arnold here to speak. Arnold most people that I know, no one knows the Old Testament like Arnold does. Arnold is quite qualified in the, especially in matters relating to Hebrew and matters related to the Old Testament. And this question that he raises here, this point of Greek grammar, has been challenged, and I have spent a good bit of time researching the background on this in the last few weeks, and I believe that Arnold is absolutely correct in his analysis of the Greek. He didn't invent this argument. Actually, it goes back, as far as I can tell, at least to a French commentator on Matthew by the name of Godet. And Godet got it from someone previous. So this is not an argument that is, was invented by, by Arnold. But Arnold points this out. He says, If by Jewish law you could not mention the name of a woman, but you wish to trace a woman's line. See, according to, to establish a legal descent in a legal genealogy, you didn't mention uh, the woman's name. Now, Matthew is <clears throat> has a little different orientation, but Luke is demonstrating uh, a more of a legal line, and he's trying to include almost everyone in the line. So Arnold says, if by Jewish law you could not mention the name of a woman, but you wish to trace a woman's line, how would you go about doing so? The answer is that you would use the name of her husband. That raises a second question. If you were to use the husband's name, how would you know whether the genealogy is that of the husband or the wife? In the Greek text of Luke's genealogy, 
Every single name mentioned has the Greek article the, or actually two, but for English purposes, the, with one exception, and that is the name of Joseph. Joseph's name does not have the definite article the in front of it, while all the other names do. What that would mean to someone reading the original is this. When he saw the definite article missing from Joseph's name, while it was present in all the other names, it would then mean that this was not really Joseph's genealogy, but rather it is Mary's genealogy. But in keeping with Jewish law, it was the husband's name that was used, and there are two examples from the Old Testament where the husband's name is put in the genealogy in place of a woman's name, and those passages are Ezra 2, verse 61, and Nehemiah 7, verse 63. So that emphasizes the fact that Luke's genealogy is that of Mary. Joseph cannot be the physical father of Jesus. Now, why is all this important? Why have I spent 45 minutes going through what, for many people, is just arcane detail? Why don't we get to something practical? Because if Jesus isn't born of a virgin, he is not qualified to go to the cross. Because if Jesus isn't born of a virgin, then he would have inherited a sin nature through his father. That sin nature would have disqualified him to go to the cross as a perfect, sinless human being to die on the cross in our place. But this is something that is... Uh, rejected as unnecessary by many moderns because they actually reject the necessity of uh, the substitutionary atonement on the cross. But the scriptures are clear, as I've pointed out before, that, that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is not something new. This is an argument you will hear today is that these ideas came along later. After Jesus died, the disciples made this up about the resurrection, the disciples made up the miracles. The disciples made up a number of other things just to try to uh, substantiate their position and this new religion. But this goes back to Isaiah 7:14, where we have the most clear prophecy of the virgin birth in the Old Testament. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be called, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name. Emmanuel. Now, I went through this in detail a few weeks ago, so I'm just going to summarize the arguments. First of all, in the Hebrew, when you have this kind of a construction where you have the uh, word behold plus an active uh, participle in the grammar, what that indicates is a future event, a future event. He is not saying behold this person out in the crowd. Isaiah is saying behold, look at this event in the future. So the behold indicates a future event. The second thing that's important to note here is that the word virgin is not a virgin as it's translated in the New American Standard. It is the virgin, Ha'ama. It has a definite article there indicating that, that it's speaking of a specific woman, not just any woman, but a specific woman that would be known to the Jewish audience, that the virgin would be with child. The third thing we noticed is that there is a, discrep- a disagreement about the translation of the Hebrew word Alma, which is the word found there translated virgin. There are those who contend that a superior word for virgin would be the Hebrew word betula, that Alma does not necessarily mean a virgin. And so they claim that if Isaiah really had in mind a virgin, he would have used the word betula. Unfortunately, the word Betula is used in Joel 1.8 of a young widow, a young woman who's a widow. She is not a virgin. She has been married. And so Betula, though it frequently refers to a virgin of any age, it does not necessarily mean a virgin. The word Alma, on the other hand, never, ever refers to a woman who's been married. It never refers to a woman who's been married, and Alma refers to a young woman, not just a woman of any age. So by using Alma, 
Uh, the writer is definitely not excluding the idea of being a virgin. He is emphasizing the fact that this is an unmarried woman, an unmarried young woman. And then we brought in the fourth idea that this was a miraculous sign to Ahaz, that for it to be a miraculous sign, it would have to indicate a virgin, because for a young woman to just show, for a young unmarried woman to show up pregnant is not a sign. That's not a miracle. That happened frequently in the Old Testament as it does today. That is not an un- usual event for an unmarried woman to end up pregnant due to her own indiscretions. So this clearly, though, is a something that is happening out of the ordinary. And the Jewish translators of the Greek Old Testament understood this, and when they translated it into the Septuagint, they used the Greek word parthenos, which means virgin. And that is the same word that the Holy Spirit uses in Matthew chapter 1, when there is a citation of, of Isaiah 7.14. The conclusion is that the Old Testament clearly teaches that there will be a, a virgin conception and a virgin birth. However, this has never set well with uh, opponents to Christianity. From the time of the life of Christ, there have been various assaults and attacks against the virgin birth. Uh, ancient Jewish attacks claimed that it was basically a fraud. There's a hint of that in John 8, uh, 41, that there may have been an alleged cover-up for Mary's alleged fornication. This was the idea that was really promoted in uh, uh, later Jewish writings. In the Jewish uh, Talmud, there is the claim that a certain Yeshu, that is Jesus, uh, called Natsri, so son of Stata or son of Pantera. See, this was what the Jews claimed was that Mary had had an affair with this Roman soldier named Pantera, and uh, Joseph just uh, was in the uh, operating the cover-up with Mary, and so they made this uh, virgin birth claim. However, that has never been able to be uh, substantiated, and as Christians, we just reject that out of hand. This came along and was developed by the Jews many years later as a defense against what was happening in Christianity. Now, among Gentiles, the basic approach since the Enlightenment has been to just deny the whole thing anyway. But the general orientation of Human thought, apart from Scripture, is to be skeptical of anything supernatural. Their basic assumption, their basic presupposition is to reject the fact that God interferes in human history. They deny miracles. They deny the resurrection. They deny uh, the virgin birth. All of those denials go together because what underlies them is a basic rejection of uh, the supernatural. And this found its greatest fruit. It was born during the period of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, but it bore its greatest fruit during the development of classic 19th century religious liberalism from about 1840 on to the end of the 1800s. And this fruit is what produced the great fundamentalist modernist controversy that erupted at the beginning of the last century. This is what split many denominations between those who were conservative Bible believers and those who weren't. And what was being denied were the doctrines of virgin birth, the doctrine of of, of the sinfulness of man, doctrine of the virgin birth, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, doctrine of the second coming of Christ, doctrine of of uh, miracles and doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. And as a result of those denials by liberals, you had conservatives respond, and they responded with something called the fundamentals of the faith. And if I can remember them off the top of my head, the five fundamentals of the faith was that the Bible was the infallible Word of God, that we believe in the virgin birth, we believe in miracles, we believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, and we believe in the literal second coming of Jesus. Those were the five fundamentals of the faith. And therefore, if you believed in the five fundamentals of the faith, you were called a fundamentalist. That's where the term came from. You know, a fundamentalist wasn't what it became by the mid-20th century, which is a bunch of uh, legalistic, self-righteous, narrow-minded 
uh, religious bigots, but the term fundamentalist referred to anyone who believed in the five fundamentals of the faith as opposed to the liberals who denied that the Bible was the word of God, denied the virgin birth, denied the reality of miracles, denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ, or denied the literal physical bodily return of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the great popular pastors and preachers who of, of liberalism in the early 20th century was a man by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick, and he was the... the uh, a pastor of a of a Baptist church in New York City, and one Sunday morning in June of 1922, he spoke as a guest speaker at the First Presbyterian Church in New York, and his sermon was titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? You see, there was a battle. That was part of the, the Scopes trial and everything else was all part of the fundamentalist modernist debate. And in that particular um, uh sermon that morning, which was broadcast on the radio throughout the country. See, you gotta you gotta understand you got Harry Emerson Fosdick and then you have uh, Norman Vincent Peale and then Robert Schuler and that's kind of the lineage of of uh, the descent of, of liberal garbage that's gone forth from pulpits in this country. Well this is what what uh Fosdick had to say. And this really points out the the uh the issue here. He says here for example is one point of view that the virgin birth is to be accepted as historical fact. It actually happened. There was no other way for a personality like the master to come into this world except by a special biological miracle. Well, he says that's one point of view. And many are that notice the sarcasm here and notice how he is putting us down. He says, well, that's one point of view, and many are the gracious and beautiful souls who hold it. But side by side with them in the evangelical churches is a group of equally loyal and reverent people who would say that the virgin birth is not to be accepted as a historic fact. So here's the point that he is making, is that you can be a Christian without accepting this as a historic fact. It's not necessary. It's just uh, superficial to Christianity, and yet, as I'm pointing out, it is not superficial at all, but if you don't have the virgin birth, you can't have biblical Christianity, and the root issue is the rejection of supernaturalism. One of the great defenders of fundamentalism and the truth of Scripture during that same era was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, and Machen wrote, the quote, the overwhelming majority of those who reject the virgin birth reject also the whole supernatural content of the New Testament. The issue does not concern individual miracles, even so important a miracle as the virgin birth. It really concerns all miracles. And the question concerning all miracles is simply the question of the acceptance or rejection of the Savior that the New Testament presents. You see, there is an agenda underlying the rejection of miracles, the underlying the rejection of the virgin birth, underlying the rejection of uh, the resurrection, and that is the agenda that God does not interfere in human history. We can live our life apart from God. We don't need God. In fact, uh, modern man does not need to be encumbered by the burden of this historical uh, traditional uh, religion. So the underlying issue is not simply a rejection of the virgin birth. It is a rejection of uh, supernaturalism and the involvement of God in human history. So <clears throat> they reject it uh, completely. Next time we'll come back and... Uh, I will start dealing with the purposes, the reasons, the necessity of the virgin birth theologically, as well as the reasons why the second person of the Trinity had to become incarnate. Uh, John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the reason is, is ultimately to provide a salvation that without a Savior who is fully God and fully man, there is no salvation. 
the means by which that was accomplished, the means by which the eternal second person of the Trinity entered into human history was the virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, there's no God-man. Without the God-man, there is no salvation. Without salvation, there is no Christianity. And as the same argument that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, we are the most foolish of all people if we believe this. Uh, and, and without substantiation. But Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He is undiminished deity, united with true humanity, and thus we have a glorious salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we have had to study your word and go through the details which confirm for us the accuracy of the text of Scripture, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the record, which tells us that There was to be a Messiah who would be born of a virgin. This would be a great sign, a great miracle that indeed took place through Mary, that Jesus did not come through uh, the loins of Joseph, but through a miraculous virgin conception and birth uh, through Mary. And because of that, we have a Savior who is without sin, one who is qualified to go to the cross and there to take our place, to die as our substitute, that we may have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their uh, salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. You don't need to get involved in some kind of religious activity. You don't need to clean up your life, go through some sort of moral reformation or religious experience. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Scripture makes it very clear that the issue is faith alone in Christ alone. It's not works. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Jesus Christ did everything. It is a free gift. You do nothing to earn it or deserve it. You simply accept it by faith. Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us this morning, and we pray that you would would help us to understand these things, that they would reinforce our faith and strengthen our convictions of the truth of Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.